Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Delphi podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Sai, who is the founder of Saffron Finance. It's app.saffron.finance if you want to check it out while we're recording. Sai, how's it going? Going good. Thank you. You're the first guest I've had on to use a voice changer, and I kind of really like it because we're now really pushing the limits of having you know anonymous founders on. Yeah, I think it's something that uh, I encourage and more people should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. So, I know you can't tell me too much about yourself, but I guess, you know, tell me what you can about yourself and, you know, how you got started in crypto or how you found a Saffron, whatever you can while keeping your anonymity. Absolutely. I've been in this space for just about eight years, I would say, and I've been working full time in it that entire time. I got interested in Bitcoin earlier than that. Uh, I had learned about it online and been introduced to it by a friend. And it really captured my attention because it gives people the ability to use their capital and deploy their capital in a way that they choose without limitations and without restriction. So I've been interested in it for that long. I've been building teams in this space and working on other projects, some Bitcoin related, some altcoin related, some Ethereum related. And the team that I brought over to Saffron has been working with me for just about five or six years now. So I really trust them and they really do great work. So my background has just been working in this space for pretty much my entire professional career. That's awesome. And have you always been anonymous through your whole career or, or have you been public facing in any past projects? It's been about half and half on Bitcoin talk forums. I have a few identities. I've done some work for other projects, other protocols under identities that are not SciKeeper, not like related to each other. But I do have a, a public profile, which is also uh, used to work in the space. That's awesome, man. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. And it, it's interesting because you're one of the first guests I've interviewed like this. I mean, what are the major benefits to you about being anonymous, but also being out here? Like, are you able to push the regulatory bounds more? Are you able to be more honest with people? Um, and I guess, how do you think about the trade-offs where, you know, some people in the space really look for, you know, a public figure that, you know, they have credibility to lose if they leave, stuff like that. So I guess, how do you think about the trade-offs? I've tweeted about this before. My thoughts are that the trade-offs are heavily in favor on the Anon side, where if you have a a non-reputation, which is very strong, it it is much more valuable than having a public reputation that is very strong. The public reputation sometimes gets uh, included with other things that are personal to you. People will judge you by uh, many different criteria that doesn't really make much sense. And in a purely egalitarian world, people would be judged by the benefit that they contribute towards society. So I think that that's something that non-founders and non-users 
uh, can maximize and optimize for because they're purely judged by the work that they do and the amount of value that they bring and the good that they bring to the world. And they're not restricted by some of the arbitrary rules and, and some of the criteria that people use to unfairly judge the actions that, or the, uh, you know, there are some preconceived ideas that users have of other users based on things that are not related to how good of a work they can do or how much they contribute to society or the people around them. And I think that that is completely eliminated by being anonymous. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, I, I tend to think about people on what they've done in the past, the projects they've built on, the opinions they've had, and I guess you get to change a lot of that. And it's kind of funny. I mean, you are where the space is going. It just seems like you're you know well ahead of your time, right? Like if Web3 defile works out, like we should be basing people off their you know reputation and their you know crypto identities, not so much their public facing selves, right? I agree with that. One of the biggest challenges of being anonymous is that you have the upstart problem where no one trusts you to begin with. And there are a lot of anonymous identities that will upstart a new project and then use their anonymous cover to rogue people or scam people. Uh, and that's kind of just a problem just in the very beginning. It isn't unique to anonymous founders, but it's much easier to get away with that. Uh, so I think that building an anonymous reputation is much harder, but in the long run, it pays off. Yeah, no, I'm with you there, man. Let's uh, so let's dive into Saffron. What's the elevator pitch on what you're building at Saffron and how you've been so far? I like to think of Saffron as a bridge between the adoption phase and the mainstream adoption phase uh, of DeFi. So in the early adoption phase, we have many high-risk tolerant users, and by definition, someone who's an early adopter is usually high-risk tolerant because they're willing to try new things. They're willing to look where no one else is looking and put their capital in risky and untested protocols. And as this moves along the curve towards mainstream adoption, we're going to be entering into a environment where most of the users are low risk tolerant users. And I think that currently the lending platforms and the earning platforms that exist in DeFi are mostly high risk. And they also have binary risk, which is to say that you are either participating in the system or you're not participating in the system and that's it. And the only risk adjustment you have is the allocation of capital amount that you decide to put onto the platform. Whereas with Saffron, you can have a tranche risk. What that means is you have a customized selection of, I want to take currency risk, or I want to take smart contract risk, or I want to be covered in the event of a liquidation or illiquidity on an underlying platform. So we are enabling more risk options, and we are making it more palatable for the mainstream user who is going to be much more low risk tolerant than most of the users in DeFi right now. It's awesome. And how exactly are you guys approaching that in in the wild, right? Like if I go on your platform right now and I want to enter into one of the liquidity pools or one of the tranche pools, like let's just take the DAI compound pool, for example, what are the different tranches here? And, you know, where's the risk change between the two and how do the earnings differ between the two as well? At a high level, you have a senior tranche, which is a low risk tranche, which has a lower reward. And you have a junior tranche, which is a high-risk tranche with higher reward. And the way that it works is the senior tranche LPs, they are buying coverage from the junior tranche LPs. And during the time that they're staking their capital or farming their capital or earning or lending or whatever they're doing on the underlying platform, the senior tranche LPs are earning, but some of those earnings get transferred to the junior tranche. And at the end, if there's no coverable event, then the junior tranche gets to keep those earnings and the senior tranche has lost out, but in fact, they've bought coverage. So in the alternative case, if there is an insurance recoverable event, such as compound gets 
liquidated and there's um, you know there's no liquidity to uh, pay back the suppliers or if there's a smart contract bug or something that we can detect on chain then the junior tranche capital is used to repay the senior tranche uh, LPs to an amount that is specified in the protocol so in that way we can switch the interest and you can essentially pay later for insurance coverage and it makes it much easier on the UX and it's a much more seamless uh, experience for everybody. Pretty interesting. And you brought up insurance and coverage there. I mean, you know, full disclosure, we've invested in X Mutual and Armor and, and other things at Delphi Ventures, but it sounds like what you're doing is you're kind of embedding that insurance to begin with, right? Because you're allowing people to choose a tranche where they're protected in the event of an issue. And that issue is not only a smart contract issue, right? But it, it could also be an economic issue. That's correct. Anything that's detectable on chain is something that we can write into a smart contract and then execute the waterfall mode. Waterfall mode is when the junior tranche capital gets redistributed to the senior tranche. So things like an illiquidity event, for example, on compound, there are multiple different return values that you get when you try to redeem your die uh, from your C die. And one of them is there's no liquidity left in the market. That's an event that we could detect. We can also detect how much DAI is on their smart contract system. And we can also detect what the price of DAI is being read at on an Oracle. And all these things can be written into a series of events that would determine an insurance issue or an insurance coverable issue, and then can be repaid by these, the junior tranche LPs capital. Awesome. That's no, it's pretty cool to think about. And one of the interesting things is, I guess, the target market for this, right? Like everybody right now in DeFi and crypto is just, you know, everybody wants a crazy yield. They're very, you know, they take risky positions. It seems like Saffron is ahead of the curve in a bit because you guys are offering, you know, a low risk option to a, for the larger tranche here, the senior tranche. How do you, like, where do you envision your target users to be? Like, do you think that the riskier tranches will be kind of our DeFi DGENs and the more protected tranches with the lower earnings will be kind of more institutional capital? Or how should we kind of think about the target markets for each side of the tranches? We think that the high-risk tranches will always be filled out with the DeFi native users who are in crypto very early and just want to earn the biggest reward that they possibly can because they're already taking this crypto risk. We think that the low-risk users will mostly be, let's say, exchanges that want to put their capital to work there will be treasury funds in DeFi that are using their governance treasury. They want to earn, they have a, like a massive ETH that they want to earn on. Let's say they don't want to put it directly into an underlying protocol to earn interest, but they want to have some coverage on it. They'll be okay with earning 2% instead of 6%. That's an option that they have. And we think institutional, uh, I know it's kind of a meme that institutional capital is coming, whatever, but we do think that there are users that are not introduced to DeFi yet that want DeFi exposure or will want DeFi exposure, but not necessarily exposure to all the risks. And they'll be willing to take a competitive rate against the traditional finance APYs uh, with the Saffron uh, senior tranche APY, which will do some sort of risk coverage on some DeFi events that are not uh, similar to the traditional finance events. It's interesting. Yeah, no, it is funny. It is kind of like an institutional meme at this point. but. You know, one of the interesting parts there is if an exchange or, or a large party deposits into the safer tranche, you know, how are they protected, though, in the event of a blow up? Like, aren't both tranches being deposited in compound? Like, if compound blows up, how is that one tranche 
uh, protected. And apologies if I'm, I'm confusing anything here, but I think it's just worth clarifying. So there are two ways that this works. The first way is that there is SFI staked in the pool. So the junior tranche has to put up SFI in a dumb smart contract that just says that SFI is locked and not redeemable until the user redeems. So that SFI is safe from an underlying platform risk. The second thing is that we can, in version two, create new types of pools with many different programmable parameters where not all capital is deployed to an underlying platform. You are correct that currently we have one type of pool where everything is deployed into compound uh, and all of the interest is earned on compound. But in the future, we can have some capital that stays in the pool, some capital that stays in a lower risk dollar profile, or we can have people, anyone go on the system and create their own tranche uh, based on a criteria that they set and then deploy that and uh, others can join in on it. So I really view Saffron as an entirely peer-to-peer risk matching engine more than anything else. We have currently one type of tranche uh, pool. We're adding more and we're going to enable uh, others to create any type of setting that they want in the future. That's awesome, man. This is, it's super interesting and that makes a lot of sense. And the other thing is just on rates, right? Like if I go into the DIOS tranche, the APY is kind of thin, right? Like it's at, the max is out at like half a percent. How do you, you know, convince people to go into that tranche, right? Because you need to attract a lot of low risk capital to fill up the low risk tranche to make sure that the high risk tranche gets, you know, a higher percentage of the earnings. Like, how do you convince people about earning that yield when it might be lower than, say, what's offered on Compound or Ave? Is it is it the protection that they're getting? Is that the sell point? Yes, in the current iteration of pools, that is what they're buying with that interest that they're paying. So if they're earning only half a percent APY, it's because the coverage that they're buying is worth the amount of interest that they're losing in opportunity cost, having not farmed on the underlying pro- uh, platform directly. So you can look at it as a scale from one to a hundred. Right now, the senior tranche is about 10. Going into compound directly would be 50. And going on to a, uh, a tranche or the junior tranche in Saffron would be 100. So we're looking at creating new pools, and in version two, it'll be much easier to create these new pools with a better uh, and more focused pricing point. And that's something that we're planning. It's been two months since we launched, so we're trying to just see where people's interests are aligned, and we're trying to make sure that we can best gauge how the insurance market will play out and what pricing looks like for DeFi. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And that's good. You guys have done a lot in the last two months, which is which I think is incredible. And and I really appreciate you being so attentive to all my questions on the side. And I, I guess the to echo your comment on insurance pricing, it is interesting, right? Because I mean, the alternative, I guess, is you know, you deposit your money on compound and, and take out cover on next mutual or armor, but in your way, it's kind of already embedded by default if you go into that not risky tranche, which is which is pretty interesting. But you do give up some of that rate, I guess. That's correct. We try to make it as seamless as possible. And at a high level, to answer your question even better, I think DeFi as a whole is just figuring out pricing and figuring out uh, exactly what APY works where. We're in kind of a speculation mode, but as this draws down into like real business mode, we will have to figure out exactly what rates people will pay for what type of coverage. Uh, and that's part of the process of building a product. So I think we're very early in DeFi in general to figure out really what makes sense. Uh, but we'll find a equitable market rate as time goes on. 
No, that makes sense. And how's traction been so far? I mean, I know you said live for two months. You guys have a lot of total value locked. Like you have, I think, what, close to 40 million locked. How has that been and, and how's uptake been there? It's been great. The community has been very supportive. I see new users coming to Discord every day. We have a very vibrant community. We have community managers and we have people contributing into reporting bugs and making suggestions. And we've been able to make some key hires in the past few weeks, which are going to expedite our ability to create new products and to build things that people want. So I find it to be a very positive outlook in terms of where we're going to be headed, uh, launching new products, and also how many different protocols that we can integrate with. We've been in conversations with Alpha Moro. We've been in conversations with Rari Capital. They've both integrated us onto their platform. And we're working with even more products. And there are even more protocols which want to implement Saffron tranches and tranche adapters into their, uh, into their offering. That's awesome. Yes, yeah, it's, it's great that you guys have, have built out a good set of community members. And I guess just turning a bit to your token, um, you know, we focus a lot on, on tokens that make sense, for lack of a better word. Um, your token has certainly struck us as interesting because it has a real use case within your platform, right? So you have to hold the SFI token to enter the A tranche, which is the riskier tranche, to get that higher yield. I guess, how do you think about the token long term? Like the way it's set up today is like if you're in the die pool, it's two SFI per thousand die. Um, which does create like some type of a theoretical limit on, on how much die you can have. But I guess, how do you think through kind of the use of the token long-term and, and any changes you're thinking through there? I look at the SFI token as a threefold use case in the system. The first is that you have to use SFI to be able to enter into the tranche, the uh, extra earning tranche, as you pointed out. So that gives it some value in terms of being demanded uh, for actual use in the system. The second is the governance token, like classic. You want to hold a certain amount of tokens to be able to vote. And I think that this is something that we're going to be focusing on in the next coming weeks where we have multi-sig deployed. We're going to have snapshot page up and running. We're going to have voting uh, going on. And some of the protocol decisions for V2 will be based on token voting. And the third way is that we want to expand the SFI staking to not just a farming reward, but we want fees accrued on the system to be earned by SFI stakers. So if we add a performance fee or if there are some value-added services like SFI leasing or anything that we can build on top, that's something that SFI stakers will get a percentage of based on how many other people are staking at the time. So we see the SFI token as not just a speculative measure, but also something that's useful within the protocol. And we can even expand beyond that if you get really deep into Web3 and think about how to incentivize front ends, how to incentivize data storage, how to incentivize something like the graph where you have metadata indexing. These are all things that are important to incentivize with token holding. And I think you know that would be a fourth option or a fourth thing that we can get into. But currently, we have those three different use cases. That's really cool. And I guess it's interesting. I mean, getting a percentage of fees for staking is classic and makes a lot of sense. And it's pretty clear to model and think through. I guess having to use the token, though, to enter the different tranches is, is super interesting. I mean, do you think that that's going to be dynamic in the future instead of kind of an arbitrary rate, you know, say two SFI per, you know, some level of the other asset? Or I guess, how should we kind of think through that? Because I guess if you want to earn that yield, you also have to think about kind of the sunk cost of also buying SFI to enter as well. So the way that I think about this long term is that SFI should be the de facto backstop currency, and it should have some semblance of a trust from the user that when they get 
its coverage, they'll be getting SFI back and they'll trust that the market is deep enough and that it has enough value that it will be something that they want to earn in place of their lost capital. So I think that that's the brand that we're trying to build and we're focusing on that right now. Who knows where the future will go? I think there are many, many options. There are probably infinite number of different configurations that we can use to make SFI valuable in the system. But for now, that's what we've targeted because it seems like it makes sense and people are okay with it and it seems to be working. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. It makes sense. Um, and I guess on just issuance, right? Like the lower risk tranche earns a majority of the SFI tokens. I think it's 95%, but this is going to like fall soon, right? Like it's going to go down over time. I think it's going to go to 200 SFI per Epic. Uh, I might be wrong on that, but are you concerned at all like that yields will fall a lot once the SFI issuance falls down and kind of the normal yields from the tranches and where those assets are invested has to take over? Like, I guess I'm just wondering how you think through that potential fall off or if that's not so much of a risk right now. So currently the SFI reward is something around 400 SFI for this epoch and it gets cut off at 200. That's the lower bound. So it will be there will be a continuation of the SFI rewards until they are completely turned off, which is when there will be zero SFI rewarded. So I look at it similar to Uniswap, where you had this Uni LP token or Uni token that was uh, distributed to LPs for a while. But people find value in the system and they'll do it anyway because there are other ways that they earn fees, like 30 basis points on trades, things like that. So it really is just an introductory reward mechanism for people to learn about SFI and for it to kind of go viral. And I think we've succeeded in that. Uh, another reasoning that we had uh, these high rewards at the very beginning was to reward early adopters, who mostly are the people that are going to be doing like deep searching into what's new and what's happening in DeFi. Uh, and those are the ones that will have the best idea of how to build a DeFi protocol. And in fact, we do have a lot of large SFI holders who have contributed a lot to the ecosystem and contributed a lot to the direction of our project that have earned SFI in the early epochs because they were early adopters. So we feel strongly about the emission schedule that we've chosen. And I think having it down to 200, keeping it at 200 for a little while before it completely cuts off is the perfect way to kind of lower us down into the, all right, now we have to do a real thing that actually makes sense, like Uniswap did, where you have 30 basis points for LPs. And it's a completely decentralized system with no rewards. Everyone participates because everyone wins. And there are multiple different sides of these trades happening. And I think that's where we want to see Saffron, where it becomes this peer-to-peer risk adjustment layer and it becomes a programmable risk protocol. It's awesome. Yeah, no, there's definitely that inflection point where you go from you know yield farming or early community to that real use case. And having your token play into that makes, makes a lot of sense. And I guess just thinking down the line and just think about DeFi, how do you think about Saffron as being used within other DeFi protocols? Like, do you think that other DeFi protocols will plug into you guys? You'll plug into them? I'm just trying to see where you guys fit in in the broader scope because we're seeing obviously just so much composability and work being done in DeFi. It's, it's kind of hard to think through unless you're seeing it in action. Yeah, I'm strongly prioritizing composability for V2. I think that is the most important thing. And just looking at Compound, the reason that we chose Compound for our first platform was because they had incredible documentation. They had developers that respond on Discord and are engaged in the community. And they have a very simple and easy to understand protocol that exposes just a few functions to get done what we need to get done. And it works. So those are not easy things to execute on. And I think that we're going to be a leader in the composable tranche. 
uh, ecosystem and composable tranche market. Yeah, that's fair. Now you got to go with whoever's easier to work with. And I guess just switching over to the team itself. I mean, you mentioned you're, you know, you've had a team that you've worked with for a long time and you trust them. You also mentioned you recently brought on community managers. Do you have the team you need to build this out over the next year? Are you aggressively hiring? And I guess the other question is, how are you compensating those people um, to work with you? We're currently raising a funding round, which is a traditional sort of VC, well, as traditional as a crypto fund could be. But we are currently uh, paying people based on our initial investment, which is just the funds that we had before we started the pro- uh, the project. In the future, which is very soon, we'll be announcing how our funding round went. We're raising up to 1.5, maybe $1.7 million. Uh, and those tokens will be sold from the treasury and distributed to investors who are going to be aligned with making the project work for a very long time. They're going to be locked up. So we're going to be hiring a few more key, trying to fill out some more roles. But currently, I just want to bring the whole team that I have on right now full time and then uh, expand a little bit into like more exploratory features, as well as hire a team to do maintenance and upkeep of the existing Web3 app. So yeah, we are definitely expanding our team, uh, but I've been working with most of the people that I'm working with now for a long time, and I just want to bring them on full-time and make sure that they have a steady outlook for working on the Saffron protocol and building it into what could be a fully decentralized on-chain DAO with governance and a treasury and fees being earned and just a self-perpetuating mechanism. I think that's the end goal. And we're all working towards that now and we want to make it happen. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how much you guys have gotten done with, you know, what you said was a part-time team. I'm pretty excited to think about what you guys could do with, with having people full time. And I guess a different question is, you know, how does the external community get involved, right? Like if there's a dev team that wants to build on Saffron or build around it or within it, are you guys open to that? Is that possible today? Or is that more of a, you know, come join our Discord and, and present your ideas? Just wondering how other people get involved. All of the integrations that we have currently, except for Compound, we're inbound. And anyone that wants to work with us can just join Discord, like you said, propose their idea, uh, and we'll integrate it, especially with V2 coming up. We have a lot more flexibility in the protocol, and we welcome anyone to come to us with an idea and make it part of the reality for DeFi. So yeah, definitely open to working with other teams and it's very easy to get into contact with us and to work with us. That's awesome. And I mean, the adapters that you guys have to adapt and connect to other, you know, pools of capital and other platforms, is this something that's somewhat standardized? Like, you know, once you build one out, you connect other platforms. I'm assuming probably not, but I guess I'm just wondering, you know, where automation and standardization plays into this so you guys could grow a lot faster. It is very standardized, actually. Um, we have a pool which doesn't know anything about the adapter. The adapter connects to the underlying platform. So, for example, when we created the Rari pool, we modified the compound adapter and made it into the Rari adapter. And then we use the same code for the pool, uh, for the Rari pool, as we're using for the die pool on compound. So, it is very, very flexible already, but we can make it even better by removing some of the frictions that we have in V1, which I, I know a lot of users are aware of, such as the Epoch thing and having to roll over things like that. So yeah, currently we have a we built the system for integration with other protocols. So we thought about it quite deeply and we designed the entire system to work that way from, from the ground up. It's awesome. Yeah, no, if you could the more you can integrate, the better. And and I guess that plays into governance, right? Like what tranches you guys are going to have, what pools you're going to have. Do you envision that eventually 
you know, you could drift away and, or not drift away, but, you know, hopefully, you know, retire at some point and, and have the community kind of take over choosing what pools to add and integrating them? It's a possibility. Uh, personally, I really enjoy working on this, so I don't see that happening anytime soon. But I do think that eventually there is the opportunity for others to step up and present the value that they could bring to the protocol. And maybe it, that'll be something that the governance decides to pay them for. I think that that's totally valid. And I would welcome that, that turn of events. That's great, man. Yeah, having a number or a retirement date is terrible because uh, you just slow down. I love people that are in it for the love of the game. And, you know, just circling back, you guys generated or, or gave out a good chunk of your tokens in your first epoch, right? It was 40,000 tokens. I think you guys are capped at 100,000. What were your learnings on that? Did giving away that much to start, was that good? Would you change anything about how your token generation event went or any learnings you could offer new founders would be helpful too? I don't think I would change anything now that I think about it. Everything worked out pretty much exactly the way that I thought it would. We gained traction much more quickly than I had anticipated. And for new founders, I would say just work really hard and make sure that people like your ideas. We went and iterated on many different ideas. And this project started <laughs> early in the summer. This was a very different idea. Uh, and we iterated on it many, many times. And we've written probably five or six white papers before the uh, existing blog posts, which exists today on Medium, which is the first post that I put out. So I would say the best thing to do is just keep coding, keep building, and tear down ideas that don't work, and just replace them with things that have validation. And I think that that's the way that we arrived at the system that we have currently. We had it in the epoch that's on mainnet uh, in October, which is a beta epoch. It's basically epoch negative one, uh, where we changed a lot of things from the way that that worked uh, to epoch zero. So I think there's a lot of value in testing and maybe just working on mainnet and figuring out what really actually has value and how things work from the perspective of the user. It's an iterative process and it's a little bit cliched, but you really have to just throw away stuff that doesn't work and find the idea that really takes off and people resonate with. How married are you to those five or six early ideas? Like I'm trying to understand your cadence on, you're obviously spending a ton of time, every founder, every researcher does this, right? But how do you decide whether to scrap that and move on to your white paper? Because if you get exhausting, you know, your, your ego gets a bit hit. How do you keep that cadence on building, but also being able to throw stuff away if it doesn't work? It, it's kind of hard to do in practice. Yeah, you just, I, I think it was Picasso who said, you just have to create every day. And if you really commit to creating every day, then you'll eventually find something that does work. So I think that the love for actually creating something that does end up working out and people are using outweighs all the failures that you go through and all the things that you have to scrap. Yeah, I'm with you there. If you get the if you get the magic, it's it's worth all the the trials. And I guess one, you know, some closing questions for you. Just how do you plan to decentralize? Like you mentioned that you're gonna have the snapshot page up and voting. What else is involved in that? I know you said you're moving to a multi-sig, you know, when would the community actually have control over Saffron, do you think? I think Multi-sig and snapshot page are stepping stones to fully on-chain governance. There are multiple different protocols that have fully on-chain governance existing right now, and we want to get to that point. We want the fees to sustain the work that's done on the system, and we want to be able to make a fully decentralized DAO in the way that it is an organization that's autonomous. I mean, from the literal sense of the word DAO, 
that's the ultimate goal for Saffron and should be, I think, the ultimate goal for many of these DeFi projects. I'm with you there. And is it is it hard to raise being anonymous? Like as an investor, I mean, I really don't have a problem with it because you know we run a VC and we deal with anonymous founders all the time. But I guess I'm wondering if it's harder or easier to to actually go through with that raise while you're kind of anonymous. It surprisingly has not been, and I I do find it okay to share my identity with some of the closer uh, investors and some of the others that we're working very closely with. But I don't think that that was even a requirement. Most of them have told me that they respect my anonymity and they don't really necessarily need to know who I am because we can do all the deals and create all the structure within a smart contract if it's necessary. So there isn't a need for it uh, legitimately. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I think it's going to make for a fascinating case study on you know how you open the podcast up is that our identities change from you know who we are and who we're friends with and who we're associated with to you know, the value we offer on, in a crypto DeFi world. And that's fascinating and, and also kind of scary, but I'm excited for it. It's been a lot of fun. It's awesome. Well, Sai, this has been awesome. And I'm sure we'll have a ton of follow-up questions and we could do another pod, but let people know where to follow you or, or where to get involved with Saffron if they're interested. Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter. at Saffron Finance underscore or follow me on Twitter. It's uh, SciKeeper underscore. And uh, I hope to hear your ideas and learn more about what you're thinking about Saffron. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Sai. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.